This is VOCM News Talk. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. Here's VOCM News Talk host Linda Swain. Well, it's Monday. You know what that means. Good afternoon, everyone. Richard Duggan in with you on this snowy and Stormy Monday afternoon uh, was out on the roads a little bit earlier, so the of course everything shut down in Metro. And uh, earlier I went to go get my little feller from school, and uh, when I got there, it was clear, nice day. And then by the time I was heading back to the station around one o'clock, uh, the snow was starting to fall, and the roads were starting to get slick around then. And uh, conditions have only deteriorated since then. And it's not a nice day out there right now, is it, Claudette? It's looking pretty, uh, pretty gross out there on Kemmel Road. Road. I gotta say it is and uh, the more that I see as well with comments coming in um, people are just complaining not only is it slippery and of course mm-hmm. it's uh, slower than usual but people complaining that they cannot see the rear lights on the vehicle ahead of them which is really bad if you're traveling along the Trans Canada for instance. Oh my gosh absolutely and I think that's an important reminder for people out there you know it's not you know y- you have to clear off your windshield and stuff as well but you gotta make sure that your tail lights are clear. Uh, I see that sometimes people are not clearing off their headlights of the snow and they're just clearing off their windshield it's important to clear all the snow around um, to make sure that you're not uh, you know uh, to make sure that you are visible and it's important to keep them on because as of right now you, you need to be as visible as you possibly can on a day like today yeah because sometimes you know you might not realize that the snow is going to you know be whipping around so much that the vehicle behind you cannot see so anything at all to help them out would be great because we want to avoid some accidents you you brought to my attention earlier on one of those accidents that happened on Paradise Hill. Yes, yes, and uh, ha- having grown up in that area, I grew up on Paradise Road for a time, and that hill is notorious. I mean, it is steep. Steep, it is, yeah. Right, and just a reminder that you have to drive for the conditions today, you know, and allow for that little bit of extra driving or extra bit of stopping time because every little bit will help when it's as slick as it is right now. And we have reports earlier on a bus was stuck going up Queens Road. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's slow everywhere. Yeah, no, it's it's nasty out there and the best thing to do is if you don't have to be on the road right now just don't be out and uh you know and uh stay home enjoy your storm chips or whatever else that you have cooking up today storm wine storm beer yes listen and storm anything on a day like today right it's an excuse i had my storm hawkins yesterday just anticipating the snow oh my god (laughs) storm vienna sausages there you go there you lost me okay (laughs) there you go um so how is this evening going to play out and uh, how is uh, I guess this system going to play out? How much are we going to get? When are we going to, you know, uh, when are things going to start to peter off? Well, earlier I spoke with Dave Neal with the Gander Weather Office uh, about today's system and what we can expect for tonight and into tomorrow. Snow is coming down pretty good there across uh, across much of the Avalon, the Buren Peninsulas, uh, starting to get into kind of the Clarenville, Bonavista Peninsula area right now. Um, as a stand right now, the uh, winds are starting to pick up uh, over those more southernmost regions, more Buren Peninsula, Southern Avalon. Not quite, uh, not quite too, too, uh, not, not overly strong yet uh, towards those uh, further, those regions further north, like the Northern Avalon up towards Bonavista. Uh, but we do expect that those winds will gradually uh, continue to increase out of the uh, out of the northeast 
as we get into the late afternoon and early evening. Uh, so yes, um, what we can uh, what we can expect uh, certainly for the uh, for the commute home uh, after work uh, this evening uh, can expect uh, uh, snow to still be coming down fairly heavily uh, throughout that time, and with those winds picking up, uh, going to see some areas of uh, of blowing snow and, and and some poor visibilities as well. So it's going to be a bit of a tricky uh, tricky commute home this evening. So now I understand that pretty much the entire island is getting this system in some way or another. Uh, what are snowfall amounts looking like? Um, well, yeah, a good portion of the island will see some uh, precipitation. Uh, we'll see some snowfall with this. Uh, right now, I got the winter storm warnings in effect uh, for the Avalon, Buren Peninsulas, Bonavista Peninsula, as well as Clarenville. Expect those areas to get hit uh, the, the hardest with the with snowfall. Still expecting amounts across the Avalon Peninsula, uh, generally uh, 20 to 25 centimeters by this thing. By the time this is all said and done, uh, late tonight. Um, the, the those other regions, the areas that are further west, a little bit less snow uh, in total, but still looking anywhere from 10 to 20 centimeters possible uh, for those areas. Uh, as we go to uh, areas further west, expecting uh, generally lesser amounts, uh, likely around 5 centimeters or so. Uh, some areas could see a little more and others a little less. Um, that's basically uh, mainly confined uh, to really across much of the southern and, and central Newfoundland in terms of uh, anywhere that's kind of outside of those warnings. Um, areas more, more along uh, like the west coast up towards the northern peninsula, those areas should uh, should pretty well uh, sit this one out in terms of uh, in terms of getting any significant snow uh, or really any snow at all in the, in the case of uh, of the northern peninsula. So um, generally, that's what kind of, we're kind of looking at with this uh, with this system tracking through. And I guess if there's one sort of lucky thing about it, it does go through fairly quickly. So by uh, uh, by late overnight tonight, most areas are kind of out of the snow. There might be a few lingering isolated flurries on uh, parts of the avalanche. On, but generally, this should be by the, by the time we get to the overnight hours, uh, the, this storm is pretty well uh, gone through in terms of uh, any additional snowfall. And now you mentioned the winds will be a factor with the system as well. What can people expect and expect in terms of those wind gusts? Um, so what we're looking at uh, generally, uh, oh, uh, those areas under the uh, under the warning, we're expecting uh, uh, peak wind gusts generally in the 60 to 80 kilometer an hour range. Uh, most likely, kind of picking up again gradually through uh, through the afternoon, uh, but expect uh, kind of the stronger winds to come in more uh, more through the uh, more through the evening hours and possibly lingering into uh, into uh, into the overnight hours for the more uh, easternmost regions. So. Generally, anywhere gusts from 60 to 80, uh, parts of the Avalon could see slightly stronger gusts than that. Uh, so, yeah, as we mentioned, with that uh, with that fresh snowfall and with those types of winds, uh, it's certainly not going to be a nice uh, evening uh, out on the roads. And now I think a lot of people's minds are going to uh, look ahead to uh, the cleanup tomorrow. What's the weather looking like for, for tomorrow morning? Well, this, uh, yeah, the storm goes through again through the overnight. So, other than potentially a lingering flurry or two on uh, along parts of uh, uh, parts of the east coast, mainly on the northern Avalon. Aside from that, pretty well precipitation is pretty much done. Uh, as uh, as we kind of get through through the day uh, to, uh, to tomorrow, uh, generally looking mostly cloudy for uh, for, for uh, much of the Avalon uh, Peninsula and, and and getting down towards uh, the Buren Peninsula. But likely a little a little sunnier uh, over areas. Uh, along the south coast, so um, not looking at any much, really any additional snowfall, uh, like it's just some scattered flurries, so uh, not, not a bad day to uh, 
uh, to get started on the uh, to get started on the cleanup. Uh, the only thing to kind of keep in mind, uh, even though the wind should be uh, should be diminishing through the morning, they're still going to be fairly strong uh, into uh, into tomorrow morning. So generally, looking a lot of areas, uh, more or less looking at uh, winds uh, northeast 40 gusting to 60. Um, could be a little stronger on parts of the Avalon, but uh, those should kind of gradually uh, start to die out as we get later into the day on uh, 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 later in the day uh, tomorrow. So really, that's kind of the main thing in terms of the cleanup. Uh, yeah, it could be uh, still some some stronger winds kicking around, but in terms of additional snowfall into tomorrow, looks like the bulk of it pretty much is done uh, by late tonight. And there you have it. That's uh, Gander meteorologist David Neal uh, spoke with me earlier about today's system that's moving through. Going to be a messy night, and tomorrow morning, while uh, the snowfall will have moved off overnight. Um, uh, it's still going to be a little bit windy uh, for everyone shoveling out tomorrow morning, so uh, make sure that you're prepared for that and uh, you, uh, get up a little bit early tomorrow. Make sure you have enough time to properly clean off your car and the like. All right, and uh, before we go on now, I want to mention as well that uh, on VOCM.com, of course, we have our storm page up, so anything in terms of cancellations, uh, that's available on there. I want to give a shout-out uh, to Allison and Noah and Sarah in the newsroom who have been helping uh, to keep that going all day. Uh, a lot of work goes into that storm page, so kudos to them. And again, head on over to VOCM.com. If you have any questions about cancellations, uh, check our storm page, and uh, we have a bunch of them posted on there. All right, we are going to take a break here now on News Talk, and when we come back, uh, we are going to take you to the House of Commons in Ottawa. Uh, they just recently reopened uh, today, and a uh, question period got underway just before this show began, but we did manage to get uh, snippet of the exchange between uh, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We'll have that coming up for you on the other side of the break here on News Talk. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go to source before you get on the go. 5 30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And welcome back to the show. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. Linda Swain uh, is not hosting today because, as you may have heard, uh, she was hosting Open Line this morning. So we've uh, given her a little bit of a break, and uh, I'm filling in this afternoon. And there's lots going on. Of course, again, we have this uh, winter storm that we have moving through, uh, mostly affecting the uh, Avalon Peninsula. But uh, other areas of the province are getting a little bit of snow from it as well. We're keeping an eye on that and uh, traffic conditions through throughout the province uh, and uh, throughout the Avalon Peninsula uh, over the next hour as well. Uh, but now we're going to take you uh, to Ottawa. Um, the House of Commons reopening for its proceedings today. And uh, question period got underway just before we got on the air. It started around 3.52-ish, 3.53. Um, but we did manage uh, to get this little snippet for you of uh, questions from the uh, opposition conservatives, Pierre Polyev questioning Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So here's some of that exchange now. On Valley North. Well, thank you, Madam Speaker. Speaker, Happy New Year. Mr. Back from his $80,000 vacation, which he got for free. He said, like most Canadians, friends welcomed him for that vacation. He took two, not one, but two private jets paid for by the taxpayer, uh, burning 100 tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. He wants to tax the heat 
and the food of Canadians. Did he pay the full carbon tax on each of the 100 tons of emissions that he put into the atmosphere as part of his $80,000 vacation? The right honourable Prime Minister. The Conservative leader has simply no plan to address climate change in this country, no plan to increase the resilience of our communities in the fight against climate change. Warming climate causes droughts. Droughts damage crops. Damage crops increase the food of gro the cost of groceries. And yet, the Conservative Party cannot even agree on whether or not climate change is real. Mr. Speaker, we will achieve our emissions reductions, all the while sending Canadians checks to help with the costs of rising, uh, rising prices. There are real solutions. The, honor the Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Well, he says the greenhouse gas emissions are driving up grocery prices. He put 100 tons of those emissions in the atmosphere for his personal vacation. This is high tax, high flying, high carbon hypocrisy. Yep. Meanwhile, Canadians in Edmonton are facing, were facing minus 50 degree temperatures on which they were paying carbon taxes just to, to heat their homes and stay alive. Given that he gives himself a free vacation at other people's expense, will he at least allow Canadians to heat their homes without his tax? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. The Conservative leader likes to talk about the challenges Canadians are facing on the cost of living, but he refuses to take action in support of them. Uh, we, uh, he chose to delay the passage of Bill C-59, uh, which is also hurting his own caucus. Does the member for Battleford's Lloyd Minster now suddenly oppose maternity leave for adoptive parents? Surely the member for Cumberland-Colchester won't back down on his advocacy to remove the GST on therapy and counseling. Counseling oh. services. While the Conservative leader is muzzling his own caucus and putting himself first, we'll keep putting Canadians. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. This one is just too easy. <laughs> Into it. He had to muzzle a member from Newfoundland who called for an end to his leadership, joining another senator who did the same, because they understand that their constituents are literally starving and unable to heat their homes because the Prime Minister is quadrupling the carbon tax, doubling housing costs, and giving the worst inflation in 40 years. Why won't he listen to instead of intimidating his member for Newfoundland and put his leadership up to a review for? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, over the course of the fall, we've announced projects on housing that are going to create half a million new homes across this country over the year. We're working hand-in-hand hand with uh, community leaders, with mayors. We're making sure that we're moving forward on the priorities that are facing Canadians. Uh, in terms of standing up for his caucus, the leader across the way uh, will not even uh, mention the fact that uh, the person sitting three seats to his left sat, dined with a far-right conservative uh, uh, German politician uh, and wants to abolish the United Nations. Is abolishing the United Nations now the official position? 
And there you have it. That's an exchange just moments ago between uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and leader of the Conservatives, Pierre Polyev, in the House of Commons. And of course, uh, bringing up uh, the story that was uh, in the news last week about uh, the MP for Avalon, Ken McDonald, and uh, what was initially a call for uh, a leadership review of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Or uh, And then, of course, he uh, walked those comments back uh, later on in the week. And of course, we'll have more from the House of Commons now, of course, as the week rolls on and proceedings there uh, really get underway. All right, moving now from federal politics to provincial politics. And earlier today, uh, the province uh, announced that the minimum wage is going to increase on April 1st. It's going up by 60 cents uh, to 1560 an hour. And of course, it went up to uh, $15 an hour back in October. Well, the Federation of Labor says the latest increase to the minimum wage is just not going to cut it for people who are struggling. I spoke earlier with Jessica McCormick. Well, you know, the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor has long been calling for a minimum wage that meets the basic living needs uh, of working people in Newfoundland and Labrador and a 60 cent increase bringing minimum wage to $15 and 60 cents an hour in April is just not going to cut it for many, many working people in Newfoundland and Labrador who are in minimum wage jobs. So where do you think it should be? So the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives released a report that calculated a regional living wage in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that report was released just before Christmas. And what it told us was that a living wage, which is, you know, an hourly wage that allows you to, to you know, cover the costs of shelter, food, transportation, just those basic living requirements, it varies around the province but ranges anywhere from a little over $23 an hour um, to, you know, close to almost $27 per hour if you're living um, in the Labrador uh, Northern Peninsula region of the province. So uh, that wage is much higher than where we've got the living, uh, the minimum wage set right now. And we're asking the provincial government to take a look at living wage calculations to bring up those minimum wages to a, to a higher level so that people can make ends meet. So in, in speaking about that, what are you hearing from, from workers and, and the effects that the current minimum wage is having on, on their ability to make ends meet? Well, you know, it's no secret that working people in Newfoundland and Labrador are really struggling with the effects of inflation and high cost of living. Um, you know, even when you look at where uh, living wage was calculated back in 2019 for St. John's, that was pegged somewhere around $18.85 an hour. So we've seen a significant jump uh, just in a short time frame. And, and what minimum wage workers are saying is that, you know, they're making really difficult decisions about whether or not they can buy nutritious food or, or pres- prescription medication. And, you know, a lot of them are thinking about, you know, what are the other parts of the country that I could live in that would have uh, a better cost of living for me so that I could make ends meet. So, you know, I think it's to our detriment to not take a look at the working conditions and the wages of the people in the sectors that we really rely on. You know, there's uh, somewhere around, I think, like 23 percent of the workforce is earning $20 an hour or less right now. So they're below that living wage um, point. We need to do better for those people in those jobs that are really essential to our economy. Now, this latest change is due to a change in the consumer price index. Um, Do you think that that system needs to be looked at and, and changes made there? I think it does need to be looked at and, and we need to make some changes. You know, if, uh, 
tying increases to uh, changes to, to CPI, um, you know, that's not necessarily a bad a bad policy. The problem is the the starting point for those uh, increases. And, you know, we're starting at $15 an hour right now, which is, is just not where it needs to be. So the the pressures that have uh, been placed on, on people in minimum wage jobs from inflation and the high cost of living, that in, in that CPI increase is just not making up for that gap uh, that uh, working people are seeing uh, in their wages. So we need to start at a, a at a better starting point, and we think that that's somewhere closer to what, what a living wage would be. And there you have it. That is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor, Jessica McCormick, weighing in on the latest decision to increase the minimum wage in Newfoundland and Labrador by 60 cents uh, as of April 1st. That is going to be up to $15.60 an hour. And the Federa- Federation of Labor... Uh, not too happy with that. They want to see more done, of course, referencing uh, that study that was done uh, based on region and what they think that the minimum wage should be based on region of the province. And we're going to have more reaction to this story, by the way, coming up on your VOCM mornings tomorrow morning uh, with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey. Uh, So you're going to want to tune in for that uh, tomorrow morning to hear more reaction, what people are saying about this latest increase to the minimum wage and uh, whether or not it's actually going to cut it for people that are struggling. Uh, now, just before we go to the break and news with Noah Shepard, I uh, just want to mention this. Of course, uh, today's snowstorm has shut down pretty much everything uh, from uh, schools to the malls to public transit. The other thing that did shut down today was election day because today was supposed to be the by-election in the district of Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Uh, that's not happening now today. That is happening tomorrow. Um, but that is the basis of today's VOCM news question of the day. Today we're asking, have you been paying attention to the Conception Bay, East Bell Island by-election? And uh, most people, 67% saying no uh, compared with 33% um, of voters are saying yes, and that's not so surprising, uh, you know, considering that really the people who are uh, really going to be paying close attention to that by-election are the people that are in that district of Conception Bay East uh, Bell Island. But what do you think? Uh, have you been paying attention to what's been going on in uh, that by-election, in that race? you got four people in the running. Uh, what do you think? And uh, what do you think? Are, are you going to be going out to vote tomorrow if you're in that district? Are you going to be casting your vote for who will be representing you in uh, the House of Assembly in the upcoming uh, spring sitting. Let us know. Uh, There's still lots of time to go on over to VOCM.com and cast your vote on today's question of the day. All right, now we are up on news time, uh, so we're going to throw things over to Noah Shepard, and we'll be back on the other side of the break talking about electric cars. That's coming up after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And thank you very much, Noah Shepard. All right, we are back here on News Talk. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. Linda is off. Uh, she hosted Open Line this morning. And on Open Line, uh, there was a very interesting conversation uh, surrounding electric vehicles and some of their uptake here in this province. We'll take you back now to that conversation as host Linda Swain speaks with John Seary of Drive Electric NL. So we just got some new numbers back from uh, government on vehicle registrations, and we added about 500 new electric vehicles over the last year. 
And if you look at the trend, you'll see that each year, year over year, there's more and more registrations of these cars. Uh, so we're at the beginning of the S-curve. So over the next uh, decade or so, you're going to see a really fast ramp up if we follow the same path that has occurred elsewhere in the country and around the world. Um, if you look too farther west, if you look at BC, about one in four cars being uh, registered now are fully electric. So we can expect to see a similar trend coming here. And what's uh, driving people, pardon the pun, uh, towards uh, electric vehicles? What What's making them make that change? So there's a couple of things. Um, the, 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 the biggest thing which everybody can identify with is, you know, very high fuel prices and maintenance costs that come with a gas-powered vehicle. You're spending eight times as much to drive one of those compared to what you would expect to spend for, you know, per kilometer for an electric uh, that's one thing. Um, we've got more availability. There's more dealers with these vehicles available in stock on their lots or with a relatively short lead time as the, the season come in. Um, <clears throat> we're still a little frustrated that some manufacturers are only making the higher trims, which puts the cost of the vehicle a bit higher, but there are others that have the more affordable models you know, coming available, which is great. Um, a lot of people also are just more and more cognizant of their environmental foot- footprint. And if, you know, given an option to drive something that doesn't have the emissions of a gas car, they look at that and say, that's what I want to do. And, you know, you can't, you can't argue with that. You might have an opinion on that. But the reality is, um, you know, you're not doing that same impact to the environment for every kilometer you drive when you're driving electric, especially in our province, where we've got 98% of our power across the board is from renewable sources. I mean, that's, that's excellent. Anything in the, uh, the, the government stats, those 500 new electric vehicles on the road, anything to indicate where they are? Um, I didn't see anything on that, but um, anecdotally, I can tell you, of course, you know, a lot of them around the St. John's metro area but we have people that are getting these cars all around the province and in the Labrador. Um, <clears throat> you know, you look at Labrador, you look at the, the size of Labrador. I mean, this, this province is huge, and we don't enjoy the same closeness that many other provinces might have or elsewhere in the world. And getting, you know, across Labrador when there's absolutely nothing between points or very, very little for, for charging infrastructure and so on, that's always going to be a challenge. I mean, that's a reality. Um, but it is doable, um, and there are solutions that allow for intermediate charging points to be installed, uh, you know, in different ways. Uh, but we're still getting new users in, uh, new owners, I should say, in, uh, you know, remote parts of the province. And the biggest reason is that if you're in somewhere like Grand Falls and you have to commute to neighboring communities uh, or go into St. John's or into the major centers or to Cornerbrook or whichever, this means you're doing a lot of driving. You're doing a lot of distance. And if you can make that work in an electric car, your savings are just that much bigger. So, you know, people might, you know, people might say, oh, this is great for, you know, commuter car, for city driving and so on. But the reality is if you're in one of these places where you have those long distances, 
take a look at you know the electric option and see can you make it work and you know usually you can and, and as more and more charging infrastructure comes around you'll see how it works well indeed and and what about that infrastructure that needed infrastructure because as we know the federal government now is putting a push on that um, mm-hmm. but uh, what kind of infrastructure is needed especially in a province with such a relatively low population and huge geography yeah, so that's a good question. A lot of people that haven't been driving electric, they look around and they say, well, I see lots of gas stations. I don't see lots of chargers, so we must have, you know, we're going to need more chargers. And that's not how it works. Most of the time, more than 95% of the time, you're charging at home. You're charging with that little charger that's mounted to the side of your house or in your garage or wherever you park, and it can be outdoors or indoors. Um, and that's doing most of your charging. You're driving all day. You're coming home. So, you know, you don't look around and see a bunch of cell phones and say, well, I don't see any chargers, so these can't work. Everybody has a charger at home. Likewise, so the only time that you're using the, the public charging and the chargers on the side of the highway and so on are for the visitors for the area. So people that are, you know, commuting from outside of the city or visiting the province from away are the ones that are going to be using those chargers. And for that, we have 33, 33 fast charging sites around the province now. There are plans to supplement uh, the key ones, the busy ones, with ultra-fast chargers, which means that you won't even have time to, uh, you know, have a long meal. You'll have time to grab a, a coffee and a sandwich and a bathroom break before you're ready to go again. And that's, again, on that once in a, you know, every few months long trip that you might want to do. The other thing that we're going to see now in the coming uh, coming time is we'll hopefully see more private investment in charging infrastructure. It doesn't need to be just the power companies that install these things or things that are done with uh, government backing. So you'll have a choice then where, where you want to charge. And if you are commuting into the city and you're staying overnight at a hotel or something like that, find a hotel that has the charging infrastructure and then you're charged up and ready to head back the next day. And when it comes to those uh, chargers for your home, um, what do you need to know or or have uh, in place in order to have that installed? So that's uh, not as complicated as people might fear. Uh, A a basic level two charger, I mean, they they started at around $700 and go up from there. And the electrician cost to install one um, varies depending on how far you are from your panel and things like that. If you have an older home with smaller service, uh, you could opt to either have a panel upgrade done or you might uh, choose to share the circuit with another device like a dryer or something like that. So your charger would run when the dryer is not. So there's options like that. Um, Generally looking at the cost savings that you get from being able to charge at home. I mean, you put these things in, you pay for it once to get it installed and that's it. You uh, You don't feel like you have to go back to a gas station anymore because that becomes your fueling stop. In terms of those uh, 500 new vehicles uh, on the road, um, any idea what the demand is? In other words, what the wait list might be? That depends on brand. And, you know, if you look at uh, different brands, so, uh, you know, Tesla is generally shipping them pretty quickly. Uh, They might even have vehicles already, you know, manufactured and available as quickly as you can get delivery, you know, made to the province. Um, other other brands uh, like uh, Hyundai and Kia and Volkswagen and so on uh, would have you know vehicles here right away on in stock. Uh, lead time on some of the other brands are all over the place, and we're still getting 
reports of people walking into a dealership and being told, yeah, it's going to be two years or four years or stuff like this. And if you're being, if you're hearing that from a brand, if you're hearing that from a dealer, what they're basically saying is that that manufacturer is not really interested in making electric cars work. And that's signaling a huge shift in brand preference based on the fact that, you know, when someone decides that they want the savings from electric, that they want the less environmental impact from electric, that they want the convenience of charging at home, and, and just the joy of the fun and the performance of these cars, because they are such a joy to drive, um, that might mean that you're going to have to change brands if you're loyal to one brand all along. I know one question that I keep hearing people uh, raise time and time again is maintenance. Uh, what's the maintenance like on an electric vehicle? How much does it cost to get them, get them maintained, and where can you get them maintained? Yeah, so that varies, again, by brand. Uh, you know, anything that you buy from a dealer here should be maintained by the dealer. But the maintenance is different than a gas car. So obviously you don't have oil changes. There's a whole slew of maintenance requirements on every gas car that are done at different intervals to do with the gas engine, everything from um, you know timing belts and O2 sensors and all the rest of it uh, down to uh, you know the regular oil changes and oil and filter and, and so on. These, these pieces don't exist in the electric car. Uh, so usually when you look at the maintenance on something like, say, the, uh, the F-150 fully electric, it's a bunch of inspections that are done every 16,000. Um, if you go to the extreme with Tesla, Tesla's maintenance requirements are zero, nothing. You buy the car, you drive it, and if there's an issue, you report it on the app and it gets serviced, and that's it. Uh, so it's it's a big shift, and it's part of the cost savings of owning these vehicles. Is this idea of every eight thousand you've got to you know trot back into the dealership and pull out all the oil and change the filter and check a whole bunch of things and goodness knows what else? I mean, those sorts of costs. When I was first driving, when I first owned my own vehicle and own gas vehicle, they become really scary. They uh, they can add up, and in some of them, some of the intervals at forty eight thousand, ninety six thousand were. You know, how am I going to afford this? And, and, you know, in my first job and trying to cover the insurance payments and the vehicle payments. And then when I see the cost of these services coming in and, you know, and they, you know, if you don't get them done, you don't have a warranty and these sorts of things. I mean, that becomes really, really concerning. And we're happy to see these, these sorts of costs fade away and melt away when you have the better technology in the car. A wide range of, um, you know, selection now? I mean, is it uh, primarily smaller sedans or can you get the SUVs and the trucks and the whole gamut? Yeah, so yes, there's, you know, your SUV crossover, which is pretty popular. Just about every, every brand has one of those. There's the smaller ones like uh, the Chevy Bolt is around and uh, the Nissan Leaf and, and so on. Um, the F-150 truck is very, uh, very popular. I have one of those myself now for a year and a half. I'm coming up to 40,000 kilometers on it. I don't have anything that I can't do with that truck that I wasn't able to do with all the trucks I had before that, you know, and back and forth to work sites. I'm out to, you know, work sites outside of the city. Uh, I'm towing with it. I'm putting cargo in it. I'm taking lots of people in it. I've done long drives with it. I can't find anything that I can't do with that truck and a fully electric that I would do with the gas. In fact, there's stuff I can do with the truck that I couldn't do with the gas because I'm also a mobile power source for job site power. 
Um, so those are available. Uh, full-size SUVs, I've seen one or two brands now start to come out with some of those, and they're becoming available on the lots across Canada. So if we don't have them here now, they'll be very soon uh, of different brands. So lots of options. And, of course, um, you know, I mentioned Tesla. They don't have a dealership here in the province, but they are opening a uh, sales and service center in Burnside, Dartmouth, in Nova Scotia, uh, very, very soon, which will have all of that there as well, and will service our, our province. And there you have it. That was John Siri of Drive Electric NL speaking on VOCM Open Line this morning with guest host Linda Swain. Uh, interesting conversation there. All right, we are going to take our final break of the day. Um, when we come back, the Marine Institute is turning 60 this year, and we'll speak with, this, uh, with uh, some of the leadership of that organization coming up on the other side of the break. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Well, this year, the Marine Institute commemorates six decades of maritime education and innovation as it marks its 60th anniversary. VOCM's Geraldine Mackey met up with Vice President of MUN, responsible for the Institute, Dr. Paul Brett. Yeah, so 60 years ago, we started on Parade Street and uh, up until about 1985 when this building was was. Uh, uh, it came into existence. Uh, we were still an independent college in the college system uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador. Uh, we've changed names a, a number of times, but we're always the Fisheries College and the Marine Institute, uh, College of Fisheries. Uh, Fisheries Institute. Fisheries <laughs> Institute. Uh, so now we are the Fisheries and Marine Institute of Memorial University. 1992, we joined Memorial. Um, and it's actually given us opportunity to grow into the institute we are today. Um, but we are more than just this campus on the hill. We have a huge campus out in Holyrood. We have a campus in uh, Stephenville. We have a campus in Lewisport. And what's not well known is that we have uh, a division called uh, Seabed, Community-Based Education Delivery, that travels around Newfoundland, Labrador, and Canada bringing our education there so how integral was it to you know the development and the vision of the marine institute to join memorial university in the early 90s at the time it it was uh it was an arranged union i don't know that both either side wanted the union to start Uh, if you read some of the historical documents uh there were there was a there was fear what would it mean would we get absorbed uh um so those fears uh, probably uh, Im- uh weren't uh, an impediment to some of the development but if you see where we've come in the last 30 years and this institution now has a huge range of bachelor and graduate programming actually our graduate programming now is where our largest growth is so we are attracting people to learn from our faculty in 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 areas at the at the master's and phd level uh, so it was it it was huge for our development and and our reputation globally allows us to attract students into those into those areas and i guess the vision to become a hub of ocean technology marine technology has it's really well on the way of being realized tell me how that was made possible it was it was really made possible based on 
our relationship with government, who supported us throughout our growth, our relationship with our university, who supported us throughout our growth, and our relationship with industry. Those pillars are what makes and has made the Institute as, as uh, um, successful as it's been. Um, we are very connected to our industry in, in ocean tech and in fisheries and in marine transportation. And, that, and today, in 2024, we have three schools that have those monikers, or those are their main areas of, uh, um, of inquiry and, and education. Um, not that long ago, um, in 2008, we were two schools. We were two schools for maybe uh, 50 years of 45 years of our existence. Now we're three. Uh, will we become four? Or will, do we turn into two again? Who knows where the future might bring us? But one underlying piece that will always uh, keep us grounded is our connection to industry and listening to what industry's needs are from a human resource development perspective and from a research and development perspective um, and our commitment to the province. So we are a maritime province. We have been in the blue economy for since the blue economy, since the ocean crea was created. So we were here. Uh, even our indigenous populations were so uh, marine-based. Um, so the blue economy is really what we're about. Weathering that time during the 90s when the moratorium struck struck our economy, struck our culture, how difficult a time was that? It was very difficult, but it was also a big opportunity for this organization because there was a lot of uh, reskilling and upskilling of people that some would characterize as the largest layoff in Canadian his history. So what would those people affected by that moratorium do? What would they do next? And a lot of our community-based education, it wasn't called that back then, was really about reaching the people of the province to figure out opportunities and retraining to find uh, uh, new opportunities. And there you have it. That was uh, part of Jerry Lynn Mackey's conversation with Dr. Paul Brett. Uh, he is the vice president of Memorial University, responsible for the Marine Institute. Uh, that facility or that organization, uh, the Marine Institute, is marking its 60th anniversary this year. Uh, so speaking a little bit about the Institute, some of the history there. I didn't realize, actually, that uh, uh, some of the, the, the origins of uh, the Marine Institute. So very interesting chat there with Dr. Dr. Brett uh, with VOCM's Jerry Lynn Mackey. All right, we are nearing just about the end of the program now and just want to send out a couple of reminders. Uh, again, we are having uh, uh, that winter storm is coming in across uh, the the uh, the island right now. Uh, conditions are pretty messy out there. Um, so again, I uh, just want to make sure that, you know, if you have to be out, and again, uh, if you don't have to be out in this, stay home, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, curling up with a bag of chips is certainly preferred <laughs> on uh, on a day like today. But if you do have to be out, uh, make sure that you're reducing your speeds. Uh, make sure that you are uh, as visible as possible to the drivers and anybody else that has to be in front of you. Uh, make sure that your car is cleared off as well. I know that, uh, you know, I, there's so many times that I go out uh, and I'll see that people might just have their windshield only cleared off, right? And it's uh, so important to make sure that you have all of your windows uh, cleared off. Make sure that you have your... Uh 
your taillights are visible make sure that your headlights are visible uh, because you want to make sure that especially given uh, conditions like this with blowing snow and it can be so hard to, to see in the best of times uh, you want to make sure that you know you are as visible as possible to anyone that might be coming at you um, and also uh, clearing off your license plate too not too many people realize but that's something that uh, you could be dinged for not having your license plate visible because that's something that police need to be able to see um, you know to know that if you're supposed to be driving on the road at all uh, let alone out in the winter conditions and so that is also something that uh, has to be uh, cleared away uh, when you are out and about but again uh, thank you all so much for tuning in hopefully now tomorrow uh, your cleanup goes well and uh, you don't break your back while you're out shoveling Uh, that's it for me here on news talk today we have noah shepherd coming up uh, now with vocm's day in review at five o'clock i'm gonna go and clear off my car and try to head home Thank you all so much for tuning in, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Bye for now.